I was in the grocery checkout line a few weeks ago and uh, passing through the racks of magazines, and I noticed a headline on one of the magazines, 10 items to add to your wardrobe to dress for success. And I thought, how many articles have we seen like that? They talk about the ways that you can upgrade yourself so that you'll be successful. Now, there's some level of truth to that, right? I feel much more confident and assertive in a business suit than I do in my PJs mulling around the house. So there is a level of truth to that. But oftentimes, we judge too much by appearances. We look at success, we see someone's appearance, and we we judge their success based upon the way that they present themselves, which means we often miss that underneath a clean exterior can be hiding many character flaws. We have been looking through the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and we have found that the kingdom of God is anything but what it appears to be. The last are first, and the first are last. Little children are the ones that occupy the place of the greatest privileged. And it grows almost imperceptibly like leaven hidden in a lump of dough. We found over and over again that the parables of Jesus are subversive. That is, they don't function like they appear. And in our text this morning, it's no different we are going to look at the parable of the two sons found in Matthew chapter 21. In this parable, Jesus is confronting the religious elites of his day, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the chief priests and the elders of the people. They are, right before he tells this parable, and in response to it, they are arguing about authority. So while we're going to focus our attention on the parable, we're going to back up And begin reading this morning from verse 23 of chapter 21. The question is, who will go in to the kingdom of God? And Jesus answers that question. Will those who appear unrighteous but repent? Or will it be those who appear righteous but are not and refuse to repent? So let's look together at this parable of the two sons. Matthew chapter 21. Let's begin at verse 23. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to another son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. 
which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go in to the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand, so that we may behold wonders out of your word. For We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The question is, who will go into the kingdom of God? And Jesus poses this parable as a question, what do you think? which implies an answer, and in this way, it will be a heart-searching answer. Two sons, two different responses, both reflective of two types in Israel and in the church. The first response, the the father goes to the son and says, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now, notice that from the father's perspective, the first son is disobedient. He has said, I will not. He refuses the father's request to work in the vineyard. But afterward, he changed his mind. Now, the word is important. Changed his mind is the word for repent. Now, it's not the normal word for repent in the New Testament, but it does mean for someone to change their mind, however, not with remorse. The word that we use for repent always includes remorse, but this son is not remorseful. It's Jesus calls the audience to interpret the parable. He tells it so that they will respond. Which one of these sons did the will of the Father? Now, we will look at the second son in a moment, but this first son, he responds by disobeying the father, but then changing his mind and going and obeying the father. And all agree in the audience that it's the first son that was faithful. The first son, Jesus said, represents the tax collectors and prostitutes who go into the kingdom of God, he says, before his audience. Now, remember the context. They have argued with Jesus about his authority. They're asking him, why why are you teaching this way? Why do you have authority to tell us how to interpret the law? How do you have authority to heal, to say the audacious things that you say? Who gave you that authority? And Jesus poses another question and said, well, what about the baptism of John? Well, they, they get themselves into a conundrum because... They're more concerned with the politics of everything, right? They know that if they say it's from heaven, then why is it that they're not accepting his teaching? Why were they not baptized with John? Why are they not repentant? But if they say it was just from man, they're worried about all the people. Because the people believe that John the Baptist was a prophet. And so they're worried for their own lives and their status, their privilege, their honor. And so they say, wow, we don't know. We don't want to enter into that, right? That's a PR nightmare. We want to avoid that. 
And, uh, but they're still sort of hoping that Jesus is going to answer the question. And he does. In a way, he tells this parable. And it's a heart-searching answer, right? Because they have to respond, and they have to respond based upon the, the plot of the parable, leading them to the conclusion uh, that Jesus wants them to come to, to determine. The question is, why do the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God? Why, why can Jesus make such a bold statement like that? Tax collectors, nobody really likes tax collectors. Let's just be honest. If you, if you work for the IRS and you're here, we're sorry. And we pray for you. Right? It, it's a challenging job. Somebody has to do it. But it's not, it's not something that we look up to, right? And it's the same way in the first century. They hated these people, not just because they collected taxes for Caesar, but because they often said, oh, yeah, you owe five. Well, let's make it ten. I'll take the top five, and Caesar will take the rest, right? They were constantly double-dipping. They were taking and extorting money from people because they had the authority to do it. So these people are despised. Prostitutes... They're unclean, right? They represent that class of people that's unclean and that are mired in the sin of of the sex industry. So the question is, how can Jesus say these kinds of people are going into the kingdom of God? Remember his audience. These are the chief priests and the elders of the people. We need to look at two things here because Jesus gives us the answer. If you look in verse 32, it says, or, or let's back up to 31. It says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. So we have to ask the question, what is the message that John the Baptist was preaching? What is it that the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed? And then we need, to, we need to look at the nature of belief. What does it mean to believe? And how does that gain them entrance into the kingdom of God? Now, it's not as if we can just go into the library and pull down the collected works of John the Baptist, you know, flip to volume two, and, you know, we get his, all of his sermons on said subject. We have just a few verses in Scripture outlining to us the message of John the Baptist, but that's enough. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to stick in the Gospel of Matthew because that's where we've been and see what the message that John the Baptist gives that these tax collectors and prostitutes believed. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." Okay, so notice, what is the message of John the Baptist? He preaches, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, it's drawing near. And then Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
And one of the things we need to remember is that when the New Testament authors are quoting from the Old Testament, it is a flashing neon sign saying, pay attention. And it's not just to that particular verse, but the context of that verse. What is Isaiah talking about in Isaiah 40? What is the message that this person who is preparing the way, what's he preparing the way for? So if we, if we looked back at Isaiah and we went a little further than verse 3 to verse 9, it says this, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So what is this messenger preparing the way for? What is the message that he's trumpeting out? who John the Baptist is identifying himself with. He's saying that I'm the one who's called to prepare the way for God. God is going to come and dwell in your midst. The Holy One in the midst of Israel. And He's going to be a shepherd among you. He's going to care for you. And John the Baptist, you'll notice that Matthew describes how he looks. He's wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. And That looked as strange then as it would now. He is a prophet. He is, and we we read that and we think, oh, I I know I've I've read of that somewhere. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Elijah is described as wearing camel hair and being girded with a leather belt. John the Baptist is Elijah. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And the message that he proclaims is repent and believe because the king is here. You see, the kingdom of God we've seen comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's even more emphatic in John's gospel because Jesus goes out to John to be baptized. And what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he points them. And what do John's disciples do? They say, I'm following that guy. That's the Savior. And they peel off of John and they begin to follow Jesus. Right? Their lives are transformed. Essentially, John is saying, get ready. God is coming. Now, we have to remember, who is it that John is preaching his message to? It's the covenant people of God. He's not preaching to the Gentile nations, calling them to repent. What would they turn and change their minds for? They are not a part of the covenant. They need to be a part of the covenant to repent and change their mind. He's calling on Israel to be faithful to the covenant, to repent and and go back to following God. And many do. You notice in verse 6, and they were baptized by Him in the river confessing their sins. You see, The message that these tax collectors and prostitutes, what Jesus calls the way of righteousness, what they believed is the gospel. They believed that Jesus had come, that he had drawn near and he was God himself. And they believed and were transformed. Their lives were changed. Well, the second question we ask is, what does it mean to believe? 
as we read in our text from James this morning, even the demons believe and they tremble. They even have fear. What does it mean to have saving faith? We turn to our catechism, the larger catechism, number 72, which so marvelously encapsulates the gospel in this question. What is justifying faith? And it answers, justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and all other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, he not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but he receives and rests on Christ and his righteousness held forth for him for the pardon of sin and for the accepting and accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. Amen. I mean, we just hear that and we say, Amen. Because God has freely justified us. It's a gift. But how does that, how does that take place? Well, the catechism says in three ways. Not just assenting. What does assenting means? That means that we believe in the propositions. We believe that Jesus is who He said He is, that He did what He said He did, that He accomplished it. We believe that just as a fact. But it's also receiving it. Well, it's not just believing that it happened out there, but that it happened for me, that Christ paid the penalty for my sins, that my sins were laid upon Him. And now I am receiving Him and resting on Him for my salvation. That's justifying faith. And that's what these tax collectors and prostitutes, that's what it means when it says they believed. Their lives are transformed. What separated the tax collectors and prostitutes from these religious elite? Faith. They had faith. They had justifying faith. Faith that held tightly to Christ despite their sin, despite their reputations, knowing that God in Christ had reconciled them. Now think who's writing this gospel. None other than Matthew, the tax collector. This is the one who, I mean, he can't help but walk by somebody and think, I've extorted from him. I've extorted from him. I have extorted from her. I have ruined that family and watched them be sold into slavery to pay their debts. Do you think he's not grieved and mourning over his sin every time he walks out of his door? And the same would be for the prostitute or for any of us who have received the forgiveness of Christ. Do our sins, do we not mourn them because we're convinced of our misery and the disability of ourselves to do anything to save ourselves? And so we rest in Christ. But their lives were transformed. And they are no longer, they are new creations in Christ. Paul says in the the, the old way of living is dead. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. Right? We have a raging debate in our culture today, and it's infiltrated the PCA over identity. Now, is Jesus identifying these P 
people by their sins. Some are pointing to texts like this and saying, see, Jesus identifies them by their sins, so it's okay for me to say I am a homosexual Christian. But I want you to notice the context. When we're reading texts, we're not reading texts and just isolating verses, but we're reading the entire context. Jesus is speaking not to the tax collectors and prostitutes. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the religious elites, right? He's talking to the pastors and the ruling elders, right? He's talking to the, one, the lay theologians with their blogs and their Twitter followers. So he's not saying like, it's not as if he walks around saying, hey, prostitute, come here. I want to talk with you. Hey, tax collector. He's not identifying people by their sin. He's using subversive language to speak a parable of judgment to the people who, are, who think they don't need a Savior. And so the question is, who are these? Who are the second son? And how does their response shed light on the judgment that they're under? God cares very little for appearances. So we must obey Him in our actions. This second son's response, notice in verse 30, he says, And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. As far as the father knows, that's, what, that's what's happening. Remember, as far as the father knows with the other son, he said, I will not. But he ends up going. Now, as far as the, fa- as far as the father is concerned, this son has said, I'm going. I will. But he doesn't do it. By their own admission, it was the first son who did the will of the father. But Jesus turns the table on them. He does it just like Nathan and David. Do you remember the story of Nathan and David after his sin with Bathsheba? Nathan comes to him and he tells him the story of a poor man who had a a little ewe lamb. He had raised it as its pet. It was like a child to him. And there was a rich man who had hundreds of flocks. But he took that poor man's ewe lamb and sacrificed it to give it to his guest. And David is furious He says, that man will pay. And Nathan says, you are the man, David. And he flips it right up on David. And David said, it was me. And he repents. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, you are the second son who said, I will go, sir, but you did not go. And the kingdom of God is being shut for you because you refuse to repent. You give lip service. You promise, but you don't perform. Yikes. Snared in their own words. They're feigning appearance of obedience. But they're not following their promises through in their performance. Their words are not backed by their actions. And the irony is that from the outside looking in, these are the people that you would have backed to be in the kingdom of God. If you walked up to somebody on the street and you said, hey, are these people going in the kingdom of God? You know, Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, or are the tax collectors and prostitutes? You would get a resounding, it's these folks. It's the religious elites, right? They look the part. 
You guys know what vestments are, right? Some liturgical traditions wear garb on Sundays. They'll wear their white robes or black robe and a surplus and all of the uh, accoutrements. These people didn't just wear it on Sunday. They wore it all week long, right? They're wearing their vestments out in the street everywhere. They want people to know, yes, we're following God. They are the gold standard. These chief priests and elders are made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees are the liberals, right? They, they're for big government and you know, banning guns and all that. They, they want to side up to the Romans. They're fine with that as long as they can keep hold of their power. And they like being, you know, having that power. The Pharisees, they're, con- they're conservatives. They want small government. They're for guns. And they want to keep the law. They want to keep the law, like, to the letter. They are very minute in following after God. These groups are the gold standard for what the people of God should be trying to emulate. Now, Jesus has flipped it on its head and said, you are barred. You may not even come into the kingdom of God. Why? Because you refuse to repent. And to understand why they refuse to repent, we need to look back at John the Baptist's message in chapter 3, verses uh, um, 7 through 10. There, John is continuing, and he sees that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are also coming out to hear his message. And he says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crux of his condemnation is they look the part, but they don't carry it out. They say we are the religious elite, and this is what it means to follow God, and yet their hearts are far from him. Notice, In verse 32, Jesus says, And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. Saw what? What is Jesus talking about? Saw the transformation of the tax collectors and prostitutes who came out and received the message of John the Baptist. Even though they see this man is from heaven, they don't want to say that. Why? Because why aren't they following him? Because they don't want to repent. They want all the accolades, all the power, all the praise that comes from their position, but they don't want to carry it out in true, genuine repentance. And what do they claim? They say, we have Abraham as our father. And that's why. That's all. That's good enough. Abraham, father Abraham, had many sons, right? We can all sing that song. But... John the Baptist said, don't be foolish. God can raise up sons for Abraham from these stones. And we read from James, what is the kind of faith that 
Abraham had. It was a faith that went to work. It was a faith that accomplished. It acted. It believed so tightly in the promises of God that he was willing to sacrifice his only son, the heir, the covenant heir, the one that was promised. Why? Because he believed the promises of God. He believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. And so he took the knife and was ready to kill his only son. That's faith. And that's the kind of faith that saves. What about you? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have that kind of faith? The faith that says, beyond what I see, I will trust God. I will step out in faith. Even though by sight it doesn't make sense. Which is better? The open and honest sinner who doesn't try to hide his sin or whitewash it so it appears clean, or the one who outwardly professes godliness, but behind the scenes is reveling in all kinds of sins. This is what Jesus is forcing them to see. Do you see the responses that these two sons made? These are you. This is why Jesus holds the balm of the gospel to those who know they are sinners in need of a Savior, but levels woes and condemnation on those who claim to be righteous, but never obey. This parable is designed to sting. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, that's awesome because I have never presented myself as being righteous. But be careful. Because many a tax collector and prostitute who sat in church for 20 years found that they were looking down quite easily at new tax collectors and prostitutes who were being brought in to the kingdom of God. Quite comfortable with their own righteousness that they have now acquired over 20 years of sitting in the pew. The Pharisees started out great. Most believe that Ezra was the founder of the Pharisees, right? He was a reformer who was calling people back to faithfulness to God. But generations later, the relationship is gone. It's now only the letter. Watch out that that not become you. For the first son who responded and said, I won't, but then did, is the one who goes into the kingdom of God. In the first of his 95 theses, Luther said that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. So we are to carry this on throughout our life. And it may be that you have found yourself one person on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday you are quite different. You have your Christian ease. Right? You know the right words to say at church on Sunday. But on the job, Monday morning, you're quite different. Or, I dare say, online. And I've seen some of your conversations on Facebook. Ouch! I'm not sure if you would word it that way in person on Sunday. But we're much more flippant, right? We're much more careless in the way we interact online. Be careful. You might not watch porn. You might boast that you don't watch porn, but your movie standards are so low 
that you're desensitized to what pornography even is. The same can be said for violence. And I'm guilty here, right? We make, we make a concession. We say, well, you know, it's, it's a green screen. It's not real. But we are rejoicing in somebody murdering another person. And what separates us from the Romans who enjoyed the gladiator games? Rejoicing in bloodshed. Reveling in it. It's easy for us to classify our sins. They become little darling sins. We actually make them virtues. We rejoice in them, right? This is how the prayer meeting turns into a gossip session. Because you're talking about Susie's husband and, oh, you just care for Susie. But wow, have you met her husband, Billy? He is something else. And then down, down the road it goes. The truth is, the Christian life is not easy. It's a life of suffering. Why? Chiefly because it's a radical call to die to ourselves and our desires and to follow Christ. But the old man doesn't want to die. He begs you not to kill him. And the struggle remains lifelong, never really letting up and not seeming to get easier. Why? Because we become more aware of our sin as we grow in our faith. Our maturity, we see sin that we didn't see when we were younger and we grieve over it. Because we don't want to sin. We want to follow after Christ. And Jesus doesn't promise you your best life now. He doesn't even promise five steps to be your true, authentic self. And let's be honest, your true, authentic self needs to be killed, right? That old self in Adam, that's what our culture is saying you need to be true to. And the message of the gospel is saying that man needs to die and you need to live to Christ. What Jesus does promise true life, eternal life, life as you had never experienced it, life like our brother Bob Hoffman is is experiencing right now. That beatific vision of seeing God as He is and rejoicing that He has no pain, no suffering, that He's freed from the bondages of sin. And the path towards that life, what Jesus here calls the way of righteousness, is the path of the cross. The second son said yes to the hard work in his father's vineyard, but he stopped short of going. What about you? Have you promised but not performed? Have you given the appearance of righteousness but not carried through with a righteous life? Remember that saving faith is a gift of God. But it's a gift that goes to work. Believing in Jesus entails following Him. And that path to glory goes first through the bloody cross of suffering. Because God cares little For appearances, we must obey God in actions. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of salvation, which none of us deserves. And we feel the stinging condemnation against our self-righteousness that we so easily erect 
as we compare ourselves to one another, forgetting that we are to compare ourselves to Christ. And we will never measure up. But with the gift of your Spirit, we find that daily we put off the old man and we live more and more to Christ. Make our response like that of the first son. Although we are loath to go at first, we do respond in obedience. Work obedience deep in the lives of each of the ones of the saints gathered here this morning. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen.